House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we're at the interview part of the show. Uh, we are covering true crime today, uh, the book Checkmate, the Wallace Murder Mystery. And it's written by Mark Russell, who's on the line. Thank you for being here, Mark. You're welcome, Al. Great to be here. Well, Mark, um, this is quite the story. Now, I've heard a little bit about this before. Um, how did you get into this story? Like, what led you down to this story? Because I believe it took place in, what, 1931. So uh, what got you there? Yeah, it did. Uh, when I was uh, about nine years of age, you know, I live in Liverpool where the crime took place. I remember an advert coming on television, you know, one night for about a, a, doc, a drama documentary that was going to come on, and it was called Who Killed Julia Wallace? And I was, like, mesmerized by the screen, you know. Mm -hmm. It looked like someone brandishing a poker back and forth and a woman lying on the floor dead. And my mother came in the room, and I said, have you seen this? And she notified me that she said, it happened just up the road, not far away, in 1931. Well, I was just, like, you know, amazed intrigued completely and at the time like in 1931 my mother's family lived in the area of Anfield where it happened so it had a bit of a personal connection as well you know so that you know that ignited me interest in the case and you know we watched it when the, when the program was aired a couple of nights later we watched it and me <laughs> me parents me grand uh, me mother said we'll go up there to Wolverton Street you know where the crime happened uh, we'll go up to have a look at the house tomorrow. So we went up there, you know, and it was quite eerie looking, you know, looking at the house in the street was in darkness. And, um, but that moment had a lasting effect on me, you know, and, you know, really gave me the interest in, in the case. So how do you go about investigating a case that was in 1931? It must be pretty hard to find people that were um, alive at the time in... in and knew about the crime or was were part of the family, right? Or Right, yeah, it was. Uh, um, what I'd done was uh, I wrote to the, you know, the local Echo newspaper, you know, asking if anyone had any um, connection to the case or who had family connected to the case. And I, I wasn't met with a very good, you know, response. But one person did contact me and it was the... Um, a man named Harry Williams, and um, he told me that his father was the cl first policeman on the scene, you know, at the crime, at the murder, on the night in question in 1931, and, and I, he had contact with him. But um, what I did do is, like, go, you know, through all the newspapers at the, at the uh, record office, you know, from the time, the contemporary newspapers. Um, I viewed the Merseyside police records, you know, from the crime. They were, they were available. And also, and eventually went down to the National Archives in Kew to view the, echo, the records that they had there, the Department of, uh, Department of Public Prosecutions files, and there was a substantial amount, you know, altogether. So um, I was able to build a book around what it accessed. Yeah, that's when you said you didn't get necessarily a good, warm response, why do you think that is? Um, I think it could be, you know, a lot of... I'm not sure. It could be. It could be something like people didn't see the letter in the paper, or, or, a lot of the people who were involved with the case had passed away, you know, and died, and their families might not have been interested in pursuing the case, you know, anything right. to do with it. 
Yeah, it's crazy. Okay, so what's the the basic uh, layout of the crime? Maybe set the scene for, for the listeners. Yes, of course. Um, well, on the 19th of January, Wallace, this is a 52-year-old William Wallace, was... Um, he he was an insurance man, and he used to you know go around collecting insurance. He was called a he's man from the Prudential, and um, he's you know take people's you know these give them money you know every whatever, and he collect on his rounds. Well, on the nineteenth, he um, he visited the chess club in Liverpool. It was the central chess club in the city centre. He used to he used to attend. He, his hobby in life was chess. He loved chess, and he used to go to chess club every so often. And this night he went to the chess club. He found out there had been a telephone message left for him from a caller. And he arrived 20 minutes after we established that the call was made. And the chess club captain, Mr. Beatty, approached Wallace and said, I've had a call earlier, Mr. Wallace, for you to call as an address tomorrow night, the 20th. And he said, who from? And he said, the names are um, Qualtro. Now, it's an unusual name, but... In Liverpool, it's, you know, the Isle of Man close to Liverpool. It's of Manx origin. Q-U-A-L-T-R-O-U-G-H. It's pronounced Qualtro. And he said, I don't know anyone by the name of Qualtro. Um, where's the address? And he said, um, 25 Menlo Gardens East in an area of Liverpool in the south of the city. It's, it ends up about four miles away from Wallace's address. And he said, I don't know anyone by that name. What did he say? He said, oh, they want you to call with regards to your business. He want to take a, an endowment policy out on um, his daughter, this caller. So Wallace didn't think anything else. He said, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go tomorrow. I'll, I'll check it out. And um, Well, anyway, he plays his chest that night. And on the way home, he's walking home with a, with a friend and neighbour. And he asks him which way to go. And another neighbour, the neighbour says take a certain route, but Wallace said, I'll go another way that I've got an idea of. Well, anyway, on the 20th, he's collecting that day, and he comes home in the night, early evening, and he said, Wallace said he left the house at quarter to seven, and he went to Menloth Gardens area in the south of the city. He takes t three trams to get there, and when he goes to Menloth Gardens, he finds out that there's a north, west, and a south, but there's no east. So he, he asks around the area, you know, in different shops. He even asks the policeman. And when it, after about three quarters of an hour in the area, he takes a tram streetcar back home. And about quarter to nine, he reaches his home and he finds, goes in the house and finds his wife, Julia, bludgeoned to death on the floor, you know, in the, in the front parlour, the front, the front room, the living room. Wow. Oh. So, um, wow. Um... <laughs> So what do you think, so I guess obviously, I guess the police started thinking it was him, you know, he's the yes. closest, but didn't he, but isn't that kind of an alibi, all of the things he was doing? Yes, that's a good point. I mean, that was one of the reasons also why the think, police think it was him who'd done it, because he was going out of his way to establish where he was, you know, in an area that he said he didn't know. But in fact, in actual fact, he didn't know the area of, you know, Mental of Gardens, I'm not saying he knew Mental of Gardens, but he knew that area because the superintendent, his boss, his superintendent at the Prudential offices, his house was about um, 300 yards from the Mental of Gardens area. But his boss did not know whether there was a Mental of Gardens east or not. You see, what what the what the police believed is that Wallace 
he he made the phone call himself the night before, deliberately, you know, to like his um, subterfuge to um, give him an excuse to, you know, the following night. And when he went up to Melmouth Gardens, um, he could ask around, you know, because there's no such address. Whereas if he if he knocked if he knocked on an address that existed, it would just get him there, and he'd find out that it, there was no one there by that name. Whereas police think the the police thought that oh he's, he's given an uh, you know a, a non-existent address, so he can ask several people to establish where he was up there. Hmm. So okay. So now you said she was bludgeoned. So. Uh, do we know what happened to her? Like, what was she bludgeoned with, or was it a struggle? Or, and do we know the death time or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a good point. I'll, um, when Wallace got home, he said he couldn't get in through the front door because it was the usual practice. You see, in in England we have terraced houses, so you can go out the back way of a day, but of a night you come in through the front. It's the way it worked. Um, when he got home. He, he got into the house at about quarter to nine and he asked his neighbours next door because they were coming out the house next door. He asked if they would wait because he couldn't get in and that. So he goes in the house and he's looking around and then he comes back out to the neighbours and says, eh, come in, she's been killed. So they go into the front room. Now, the police come at about ten past nine and the main police detectives, the superintendents and detectives, the main ones, the C Liverpool CID, they, they appear about ten to ten. And the pathologist appears about sometime just around that. And he, the pathologist, Mr. McFall, Dr. McFall, on his first, on his first report of the death, he said that the victim had been struck three or four times with terrific force with something like with a large-headed weapon. I don't know, like a club or something. But in his report the day after that, he changed his, you know, evidence saying that she'd been struck with one violent, terrific blow to the left of the head and the other 10 blows so 11 in all less ferocious but to the back of the head crushing the skull in now the scenario in the front bedroom the front living room you know where it happened was the there was a Macintosh close to her and it had burn marks on it you know ashes and her dress also her skirt also had burn marks on it from the rings what they said was that she'd been leading leaning over the um, gas fire and she'd been struck unawares she wasn't you know so in other words that she was comfortable with whoever was in the room with her and um but mcfall dr mcfall said that you know she'd have been killed instantly with the first blow and would have been you know the other 10 blows would have administered she'd have been dead within 30 seconds definitely hmm so, so what's unusual? So what do you know about their marriage? Were they getting along? Had they been fighting? Was there issues? Or was there, uh, what would be the motive of them killing her? It, it's a good point. I mean, the neighbours and everyone who knew them said they seemed, a, you know, a devoted couple and they'd, they'd, um, you know, they seemed all in all to each other. The neighbours next door, the neighbours they met in the, in the backyard, Wallace met the Johnstons, said they'd never heard any noise, you know, or any uh, arguments between them. But um, the point is, I'll, um, Wallace was 52 at the time, and he said my wife, who, uh, my wife, who I believe to be 52 as well, or 53, but it only came out 20 years ago in 2001 that she was actually 17 years older than Wallace. Mm. 
Now, that was not known at the time by the police. They never investigated Julia's background or anything. Now, whether people say, oh, that's, a, uh, you know, she was a pensioner at the time and he was like, he got tired of her and, you know. But no, the, you know, at the, at the trial, the, the defence there, the prosecution said they could not find a motive, like, they couldn't, you know, they, co they couldn't deny that they seemed all in all to each other, the Wallaces, and, you know, they were happily married. Uh, did he have an insurance policy on her? Um, well, she was insured for um, £20, which I suppose by today's amount of money, I'm not sure what that would be in today's, <laughs> and she had, she had a bank account of £90, but Wallace himself had a, an account for £152 himself, but it's a good point, you know, because people say, oh, um, he wouldn't have murdered her for such a low, you know, insurance policy, but the same people say that he went up to, you know, when he went up to the Menlo Gardens area to gain a commission from the possible business with this Qualtro, the, you know, he was doggedly going, you know, doggedly going after it. So I say that, you know, people who say he wouldn't kill her for £20, which I'm not saying he would, but they seem to forget that they're quick enough saying that he would doggedly gain a commission of 20, the equivalent of £20 as well. But the, as I say, the... The you know, the uh, prosecution at the trial said they couldn't suggest a possible motive, but they just, I think that different people say, you know, like you're saying at the start, when a spouse is murdered, they immediately look at the spouse, won't they? Yeah, usually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, so there was no real motive, or no nothing that sticks out particularly. It could have been maybe the money, or um, not that it's a lot. Um so how did they prosecute him? Like, what evidence did they have against him? Well, the, 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 the police investigations went on for about um, 13 days, you know, and they were trying to get enough evidence, but most of the evidence they got was circumstantial. You know, they couldn't... Oh, um, also, that the, um, within a couple of days, you know, the, um, the, 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 police, the police put a call out, you know, to the uh, post officers to find out if the, tr uh, the phone call could be traced. Now, in 1931, you know, it was quite a difficult thing to do. But, ironically, Al, the, the police managed to trace the call because the caller had acted in an um, erratic manner in the phone box because the, the call took... Th it took three operators to get the call through to the chess club. And when they found out that the call had been traced, it emanated in a call box... 400 yards from Wallace's house. So the police immediately thought, oh, well, it's Wallace has come out of his house, made the phone call, and made his way to the chess club. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think that too. I, I mean, that's 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 pretty weird. That, um, wow, so um, they ended up uh, convicting him then. How long did that take? Um, he went to... He went to the committal proceedings, you know, a magistrate's court, we call it in, Brit in Britain, um, where, you know, to see if there was a case to answer for. And he found out that, you know, uh, he did that, there was a case to answer for, and he was sent to the spring assizes, you know, the main trial at, at Liverpool Crown Court in 1931, in um, April. And he, a four-day trial, you know, trials last a lot longer now, but in them days, like, it was a four-day trial. And um, the jury found him guilty. But the ironic thing was, a lot of people, uh, the judge, Mr. Wright, from what I've read of the tr transcripts and what the general belief is, that 
the judge believed that the, it hadn't been proved with, you know, it hadn't been proved totally that Wallace had done it. And he was sort of like directing the jury to, you know, a not guilty verdict. But the ironic thing was the, guilt, the jury found him guilty. And then um, within 10 days, his uh, solicitors put Wallace's um, appeal in, you know, to be heard. Now, it, it didn't look very good because there'd only ever been two times where appeals have been turned over and overturned in British law and there was never one with the with the same like background of the Wallace case so um, what happened was he was took down to London to the um, the law courts and which is the now the Royal Court of Justice and over a two day hearing his appeal was over two days and the, the law judges the law courts the, the three the three appeal judges they found him, you know, the verdict. So, you know, it it wasn't proved with, you know, with the with in regards to the evidence, and he was like the the verdict was quashed, and he was, you know, given he won his appeal over it basically. Oh, so he got free on it. Did they did they try to try him again or or anything like that? No, no, that was it then. He was like, you know, free. So how did it go for his life then after that after that big trial and, and after the appeal and he got set free? Um, was he able to go on selling life insurance and living in the same place and all that or um, did people not like him anymore? Well, that's a good point, Al, because you see at the time, I know my grandparents, you know, they used to pay him on his round and my grandparents and me great aunts, my great aunt was obsessed with the case. She actually went to the trial Wallace's trial and she used to pay him and she thought he was absolutely guilty <laughs> she said I always knew there was someone about him <laughs> and my grandfather was the opposite my grandfather always said although he was a bit aloof you know he seemed a bit conceited man Wallace but my grandfather believed that he was like he believed in his innocence but what happened was he went back to his home in Wolverton Street but his solicitor Hector Monroe advised Wallace against it he said it wouldn't really be a good idea to go back to the same area and like you said, he was met with hostility on his rounds, you know, and people shouting, and all the children in the area, like, you know, referring to him as a murderer. Another thing was that people said, you know, when you mentioned about motive before, you know, the local gossips would say, oh, he's got another woman or that. But that never came about. It was never found out afterwards that he had, a, you know, a woman, uh, another woman in the case. But he ended up going on the round, and, but... He'd get poison pen letters sent to him and, you know, hate mail, and he'd hand them over to the solicitor, and his solicitor, Hector Monroe, said, look, it wouldn't be a good idea to carry on living there. And in the end, Wallace moved out and moved across the Mersey in Liverpool to the Wirral Peninsula, which is, you know, I think he... And what, what Wallace done was um, the Prudential offices is in Liverpool, in the city centre, not far from the chess club, actually. And what he done was, he said, he took him off his round and he gave him an office job, you know, to save any harassment or that and so his bungalow was about three quarters of a mile away by by train and streetcar and that and um when he went to the chess club again he was sort of like you know snubbed the didn't what people were used to be as you know uh co-players in the club he didn't really want to know him anymore so he felt you know i think the general consensus was that i think they thought he was guilty but he um he passed, he died two years after, you know, after the, he died, you know, 
well, just a bit more than two years after Julia died. Um, he was only 54 when he passed away. Hmm. What did he die of? Um, well, he, he had a recurring kidney problem, you know. Um, when he was younger, um, part of one of his jobs was before he became a prudential officer. He went to India and China. His brother was in, the, you know, in the Far East. Joseph, his younger brother, and he advised Wallace to come over there, you know, to work as a draper's assistant and different things. But the heat. But Wallace had a recurring kidney problem, you know. He had it operated on several times, and when he eventually came back from China in 1907, he had his kidney, his kidney removed, you know, in um, Guy's Hospital, and he always had it, this problem with his kidney. And, you know, on his, on his death certificate, it states like uremia, which is like a urinary problem, you know, and pyelonephritis due to, you know, kidney problems and the left kidney removed. So he barely lived, you know, two years after the, his wife. Hmm. Well, did, you know, did they have any kids or anything like that or not at all? No, no, no. Didn't have any how children, long, no. How long were they together? Was this like a second marriage for them or was this something they'd been together a long time? Um, they met in 1911, and they married in 1914. So they've been together nearly 17 years. Neither of them had been married before, you know. Wow, it's quite strange. So I, I'm, I'm taking it that the jury found him guilty, uh, primarily uh, because the the phone call came from a phone box that was fairly close to his own place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really kind of the main piece of evidence that they had. Yeah, I think so, Al, yeah. And, uh, wow. sorry. No, so I just, uh, that's crazy that they could find him guilty on that. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, it, it does sound kind of hokey, because if someone's looking for insurance, uh, I mean, did they all have phones in their homes back then, or did everybody use a phone box? No, the thing is, no one really had phones. I mean, Wallace didn't have a phone at home. And a lot of people didn't. Um, and one of the the prosecution what what stated to him was, well, have you ever had a message like this left here at the chess club before? Anyway, and he said no, never. And when they asked him, you see what what he was trying to make out, and the defence tried to make out in Wallace's defence was that someone had called at the house, you know, on the night when Wallace had gone out, been shown it was someone that Julia had known, and been shown to the, you see, in houses in Liverpool then. The front parlour was used mainly for admitting guests into, or in Wallace's case as well, Julia played the piano and Wallace played the violin, so it was like musical evenings as well they would have. But the belief was that someone knocked and Julia showed the killer into the front room. Obviously someone she knew because she felt relaxed with, and like you're saying, there was no struggle. She turned her back to light the fire up because it being a cold night, and that's when she was struck over the head. But when... Well, on Wallace's first statement, when the police asked him, can you think of anyone who would have done this to your wife? His remark was, I have no suspicion of anyone. But yeah. In his second statement, he starts saying that there's a couple of men that used to work with him at the Prudential. Now, people, in, in Wallace's defence, people say, oh, well, I'm gone. If she's admitted someone to the house, who might she have, have you got a list of people who she might have admitted now, Wallace gave this list of different people, like friends of his, and, but he put these two workers in. One was called Richard Gordon Parry, and one was called Joseph Marsden. Now, Parry was 22 at the time, and he, he'd done some of Wallace's round for him when Wallace was ill about two or three years before. Now, 
being a young fella, he, he, he was a bit like, you know, he was a bit brash, this young fella. And um, some of Wallace's collection money, he noticed that some of the some of the accounts hadn't been cashed in. In other words, he'd been pocketing some of the money, Parry. But when the police investigated Parry and Marsden, they both had alibis for the night of the murder out. So it was neither of them. But people now are still touting Parry as being a killer, but it wasn't him. And when you look at it, you know, you can't look really further than Wallace. I mean, myself personally, he acted in a strange manner. He was a very um, precise person, Wallace, and he, you know, he was very um, intricate in everything he'd done. You know, people say the chess, you know, being into chess and counter moves, he's, he's deliberately done it, you know, to make the perfect murder. I don't look at that. I think that for someone who was so, you know, he was an intelligent man, you know, he, he was into chemistry and everything. He used to, he gave chem lectures in chemistry, you know, in Liverpool for about five years in the 1920s. And, um, but I just think for those two nights, the night of the phone call and then the night of the visit to the Menlove Gardens earlier for the non-existence address, he acted rather in a ridiculous, you know, strange manner. That was told, you know, the address, people said to him the day after, you, you work for the Prudential and Insurance Firm, haven't you got a, a directory of Liverpool with a map in? And, it, you know, you never consulted a map. And he said, oh, I didn't think of it, which to me is totally against his, his character. Because everything he'd done was usually by the book, you know. Hmm. Oh, I wonder, so did they check to see if she had been sexually assaulted, or did they do that back in 31? Um, no, they did I mean, Professor McFall, um, he said when he'd done the post-mortem, you know, the day after on the Wednesday, he said when he was removing the clothes from the victim, she was wearing like a diaper. She was incontinent. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, before the depends. <laughs> well, then, um, but, okay, so when he came home and, and found her and then reported it to the neighbors and the police, when the police come, did they check Did they check to see if he was covered in blood or blood spatter or anything like that? Or Yeah, good point. I mean, one thing with it all is that that was one of the things me granddad believed in his innocence for and even myself I can't I can't um, I can't you know describe how, how someone if it was Wallace he managed to kill her and not have a, yeah he was when he was taken to Liverpool uh, the Anfield police station he was uh, examined by detective gold and um, he said there was you know he, he checked his hands his uh, face his legs his boots and everything and there wasn't any blood on Wallace there's none on them. But the funny thing is, in their search of the house, the police as well, the, the, they, were, they hired two uh, powerful lamps from the Liverpool Fire Brigade, you know, so they could check everywhere, very intricately, all over the house. And there was no, with, with the exception of the blood in the, in the parlour where the victim was, there was no blood in the house anywhere ex except in the lavatory upstairs, a small spot on the toilet pan. But they're not sure whether that was from the same time anyway. But there was no blood on him, no. Wallace, no. Wow. Sure, a strange case. Um, yeah. And so, and, and so nobody else was ever arrested, and there was, it just sort of, um, the case just kind of stayed cold then. Yeah, yes. Um, I know Wallace, you know, after, when he was, when he got his acquittal quashed and when he was, like, going back to his office job and that, 
he was libeled by a few newspapers, so he sued them. He was advised to sue. But he'd done an article, a five-part a five, um, article for a magazine that was called John Bull in Britain in the 1930s. And he, he you know, people could say, well, he never exactly written it. He give, he give us he gave his life story and it was ghost written, you know, to make it more interesting. But Wallace continued to believe that it was someone else and, in other words, it was Richard Gordon Parry. And he continued to believe that it was Parry who murdered his wife. But now this, to me, seems that I personally think it was Wallace who done it, you know, and he's trying to fit someone else up with, like, a patsy, basically. Hmm. Well, and why why did he say Perry would do it? Like, what was his thinking behind that? Like, why, what was going on? Um, I think, I don't know. I think he's probably been the nearest possible suspect that he could think of. Um, maybe because he said that Perry had been stealing money in the past. When when Oh, that's another thing. Oh, when he came home, Wallace, he said that he, he had, when he said... Um, that was another thing he said, the police investigation said. Um, well, why would your house be burgled? He said, oh, they've burgled him. Um, what he had, he, he had a cash box in the back room, the room that he lived in. It was like a kitchen area with a range. Um, and when he took this cash box down, he said there had been about four pounds missing. Now, that was the money he collected on his round over the last couple of days. He'd, he'd had influenza on the Saturday, so it was a low amount of money, you know. But the police... That, another thing that the police thought is suspect that Wallace was trying to make out that whoever killed his wife had then took the money down off the cash box off a shelf that's seven foot too high, took the money out and then put the cash box back. And D Detective Superintendent Moore said a, a thief wouldn't do it. I can't see a thief why he would replace a cash box. But um, I think the idea was that the idea that whoever killed Julia was like, you know, trying to... Um, steal the money out of the house as well. Hmm. Sure, sure, a weird case. And and so, <laughs> um, what's your feeling on it then? What, at the end of the day, when if someone said to you, um, "Who did 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 he kill his wife or not?" How do you answer? I have to say yes. I'll. Now, when people say, "Well, what would he do it for?" I don't know. I mean, Walsh was one of those sorts of people. He he, he seemed to be like a narcissist. And he, he, I think he thought he was a bit more intelligent than, you know, the average ordinary person. And people might say, oh, that's far-fetched. I don't believe that. But I honestly think he was trying to commit the perfect crime. You know, people do kill for, without motives, don't they? You know, look at Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. And, you, you know, he, they murdered, kidnapped that boy, didn't he, and murdered him just to see if he could get away with it? Oh, yeah. There's there's all sorts of weird stuff that goes on. You just never know, right? But. Nope. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just strange because there's usually something. You know, he must have really disliked her then. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, like you're asking before, you know, people couldn't think. I mean, even like I say, the prosecution said, you know, we, straightly, we cannot find an exact motive, but people do kill for the most unusual reason, don't they? And yeah. you know, a friend of mine a few years ago when we were at a bit of a like. A talk. Someone was giving a talk on the Wallace case. She said to me, "I wonder what Wallace would think now." And I said, "There lies your answer. I don't know. Maybe he wanted some infamy, you know." Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, it's hard to say. Um, doesn't say. You know. At this point, um, 
Well, that's, that's quite an interesting case. Um, yeah. Wow. So now, where do people find your book now? Your book is available uh, where? Um, the publisher called Mango Publishers, uh, Al. But it's eventually, I think it's on going to eventually be on um, Amazon, you know, and um, Book Depository and places like that. Right. Well, we're going to have the book up on our website as well, so people can do one click and pick up the book uh, when they're listening or after they listen, so uh, so they don't have to search for it. We'll have that all up there. And uh, um, So what's next for um, Mark Russell? Are you going to do some more books like this or follow the uh, crime? Or? <laughs> well, this one took me about 10 years, old. So Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know the amount of research you put into it. Oh, it's totally enjoyable, but there was times I felt like, you know, forgetting it. Um, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Uh, probably another case, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's nothing but time. No. <laughs> <laughs> nothing but time, especially with COVID, right? You can spend lots of time um, doing it. Um, right. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. Our guest has been uh, Mark Russell, and the book we're talking about is Checkmate. It's the Wallace Murder Mystery. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome, Mal. It was great to speak to you. And my Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.HouseOfMysteryRadio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.